Um, well, welcome to, welcome to church. It's great to see all of you. My name is Julian. Uh, it's going to be my pleasure to be sharing with you this morning. And uh, we're beginning a new series this morning called uh, Joy. You all had a bit of deep joy for a moment though. I couldn't quite see it, but it came to the surface. That's good. And so we're going to be looking at um, joy in, in several different aspects. And I want to encourage you to go back and look at The Great Pursuit as well. There's a wonderful series that just underpins us and carries us. But as we enter this Christmas season, um, one, it's getting colder. Who's feeling that? And you know it's cold when the Northerner's wearing a coat on platform, right? That's, the weather has changed. We're okay with that. Uh, but two, um, we start to celebrate this thing called Advent. Who's got an Advent calendar? That's right. So, so right around the world, uh, most, most of the world, um, people are, are, are buying Advent calendars. Chocolate sales are going through the roof. And everyday people are peeling back little pieces of cardboard uh, and having a chocolate in this countdown to Christmas. And of course, for some, that's exactly what it is. It's a countdown to Christmas Day. But for others, it marks something a bit more significant, a bit more meaningful. And so um, we're, we're going to be looking through this Advent series. And didn't Jean do a wonderful job this morning with our reading? Starting us off. We're going to mark each week of Advent by lighting a candle. We're going to share some reflections. We're going to tell the Christmas story piece by piece. And uh, if ever there was a time for you to bring someone to church, it would be across the Christmas season. It's an easy invite. Hey, we're having a nativity service. Hey, we're going to be singing some carols together. Would you like to come along with me? And um, we're going to be doing that together. But this word Advent um, is one that sort of works its way into our vocabulary. We maybe take it for granted, but it simply means to come. It's a Latin word, advenire, which means to come, and it knocks the notable arrival of an important person. Can you guess who that important person is for us? It's, that's right, it's always the right answer. If anyone asks you a question in church, the answer is going to be Jesus. You can't go far wrong. Um, but it marks the notable arrival of Jesus for you and I. And that's really what we're going to be using this season for, to, to celebrate, to remember, to reflect, but also to use them as acts of worship as we remember the arrival of Christ, as we remember the person of Jesus and the joy that he brings. And it's my prayer that we discover something of the joy of the Lord uh, this morning. So are you up for experiencing something of the joy of the Lord? That, of course, is the right answer. And um, I want to I start us off with a little... <laughs> I want to start... I always get heckled. Why do I always get heckled? <laughs> I want to start us off with a, a great quote um, that really maybe changes the tact of Christmas. Because typically, we enter this season with an expectation of joy and celebration. But it's also marked with um, difficulty at time. And it's also marked with trouble from time to time. And so there's a great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Fun name to say, but also a great theologian. He says this, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Now, Bonhoeffer is famous in theological circles for being a, a, an opposer of socialism, and he was a, an anti-Nazi campaigner in 1930s, 1940s. He was marked, really, for his opposition to the poor treatment of people. And he says this, that actually, we, we are blessed when we're poor in spirit. We're blessed when our perspective is feeling like we're trodden on. And he writes it from a place of pain and experience. Do you ever feel troubled in your spirit? Actually, Advent is for you in those seasons. If you're ever feeling poor, 
Advent is for you in those seasons. If you're ever feeling up against it, Advent is for you. And we're going to discover something of the promise of God that carries us through the Advent season. And as I reflect on my life, I realize actually there's many levels of poverty. There's many ways in which that we can be poor. Uh, We can be poor financially. That's the most obvious. But we can be poor emotionally. We can be poor spiritually. We can be poor relationally. We can be poor in time. We can be poor in resource. We can be poor in goodness and poor in peace and poor in many other ways. And so for you and I, wherever we are in life, there's probably some aspects where we might be feeling a little bit poor. But the good news is, is that we can lean into the promises of God. We can bring our sense of poverty, our sense of withoutness before the Lord. And we can trust in his faithfulness. We can trust in his joy. And so... The challenge really I bring to you today is what area of your life might you be poor in? And you can think about this across the morning. You can think about this across the week. But over the next four weeks, I want to invite you to come along with us uh, and explore that poverty. Lay it before the Lord and recognize that actually he can speak into it from his place of goodness, from his divine ability to keep promises. The fact that we have a heavenly father, the fact that we have someone who loves us and in doing so, We will pray and we will discover the vast, immeasurable richness of his love. Are you up for that over this holiday season? So with that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your vast grace, your immeasurable goodness. And Lord, would you bring to the surface and the forefront of our minds areas of poverty? Not the most obvious ones, Lord, but the subtle ones that we take for granted. And God, would you stir us, and as we learn more about leaning into your promises this morning, we'll discover something of the joy that you have in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Name it, don't claim it. I don't know if you've heard this phrase uh, around in church circles, if you've been a Christian for more than a year or two, and particularly if you've watched any of the kind of Christian media outlets, you'll, you'll maybe have heard that phrase, name it and claim it. Right, uh, but, but surely I say to you, name it, don't claim it, right? Because the danger is when we, we have this idea that when we come to the Lord and we come to the promises of God, and when we're talking about having joy in the promises of God, we can shoehorn what we think God should be doing into the way that we see the world, into the way that we think God should behave. And when I was a, a young teenager, um, I, I had this idea of prayer, and I was really afraid to pray. It terrified the life out of me. Uh, And it wasn't because I I didn't think God would answer my prayers. It was because I thought he would. I was so certain that if I prayed that God would respond. Uh, I had faith from a young age, but I had a bit of naivety and a bit of a misunderstanding of what it meant to bring my prayers before the Lord. And so I started praying about everything as I got a bit older. And I started praying about things that I wanted, things that I wish would happen. And actually, in my naivety, I turned God into a bit of a request machine. Have you ever done that? Well, actually, you bring your request before the Lord and you begin to get frustrated when God doesn't answer your prayer or he doesn't do things in the way that you want him to do. He doesn't do things the way that you want him to do them. And you start to build this idea of the Lord as someone who is there to just respond to our request. But that's not what relationship with God looks like. That's not what it means to lean into the promises of God. That's more of a... a, a juvenile way of praying and I'm ashamed to say that's the way I saw the Lord for a long time God became like a genie to me you know if I if I just say the right prayer if I just say the right words if I have a bit of a ritual then maybe God will respond and if he's not responding maybe I'm doing it wrong 
Maybe I'm not praying in the way that I should be praying. Maybe I need to somehow convince God to answer my prayers. Have you ever tried to convince God to answer your prayers? It seems silly when you say it out loud, but we do that. We get frustrated, and believe it or not, God is not like a vending machine. Pop your prayer in and receive something good. That's not how it works, but for a long time, that was my perspective of the Lord. And what we realize is that his promises are not for our convenience. His promises are to take us into a place of collaboration with the Lord. But actually, as we begin to walk with the Lord on a daily basis, as we begin to know him better, as we build depth and relationship with him, we're not getting to the place where we're trying to convince God to do what we want him to do. Our hearts are being aligned to the Lord. And actually, the promises of God are not for your convenience, but they're to take you forward in your relationship with God. They're to bring you to a place of faith. And they're not just for you, they're for all of us as a community. That we walk with God together, right? So, so your life is not independent of the people sat to your left and to your right. Take a look to your left. Take a look to your right. Dazzled by the beauty of the people around you, no doubt. But one thing we've got to realize is that we do the journey of faith together. We don't do it alone. We don't do it in isolation. That we are a part of what we call the community of believers. And the promises of God are for you individually. Yes, but they're also for us as a church. They're for us as a people. And God wants to take us forward in those things on a continual basis. And when we begin to pray and we begin to get frustrated, really, if we're honest, we're probably frustrated with ourselves, Right? Because we're missing something or we're missing the right perspective in how we approach God. And, and it feels like God can be silent from time to time. Have you ever had that silence? Like, I'm just praying right now and God, you're not speaking. Well, God, I'm praying right now and it feels like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. Where are you in this moment? Where are you in this thing that I'm bringing to you? And you can build up this tension and build up this frustration. But amazingly... God is working in the silence. God is working in the quiet. God is working in the silent moments. And we all go through these periods of silence. And I want to highlight to you one significant one. If you've um, opened up your Bible, you'll see that it's a collection of, of books. And it's broken into two halves. You've got the Old Testament, or res more respectfully known as the Hebrew Testament. And then you've got the New Testament. And there's this distinction, there's this moment in between those two collections of books. And it's called a gap. It's called a silence. And it's about 450 years. You know, the last book of the Old Testament was the book of Malachi. And it was written some 430 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. Uh, and the very next book you see, the earliest gospel, is the gospel of Mark. And that was written about 45 AD. So something like 10 or 15 years after experiencing Jesus. So let's round it up. Let's call it 450 years. Right, so we've got this thing in our Bible, this 450-year gap, this 450 years of silence, and we're not entirely sure what happens there. We know that there's, a, there's an oppression, there's a, a Roman Empire that rises up across those years. Uh, people are held captive, people are held under uh, a dictatorship and occupation, and so life is tough. But for 450 years, there's nothing. You don't really hear of anyone hearing from the Lord. You don't hear of anyone uh, prophesying. You don't hear of anyone really encountering God. And it's not to say that they don't, but it's more that it just feels like a period of silence. Have you ever been frustrated when your prayer doesn't get answered in a day? Have you ever been frustrated? Let's be honest this morning. You're in a safe place. Have you ever been frustrated when God doesn't answer your prayer in a year? 
How about 10 years? Well, hey, how about 450 years? Like, that's quite a gap. That's quite a silence. That's quite a frustration to have. And really, it's in the middle of the silence that we understand that God is doing something. God is preparing his promises. He's getting ready the moment of perfection. He's getting ready the moment of his greatest display of love. But really, if you look at it from a human perspective, there's nothing going on. But actually, God is at work. And can I humbly suggest as we enter places of silence and we don't know what to do with that, maybe the best thing to do is to lean into the silence a little bit. To recognize and have confidence that the Lord is working, that the Lord is doing something. You see, in that 450-year gap, life is brutal. Like they're under occupation, their freedoms and rights as a people have been taken from them. And they're waiting eagerly for the Messiah. There is a tension, there is a poverty to their experience of life. And it's really in that place that the Lord speaks. It's really in that place that God begins to do something. And I, I like to imagine there was an idea where people were going, but you know what? One day God is going to break through. They lived in this place of hope and expectation. One day God is going to do something. They'd remember the words in Isaiah that speak to this. And we're going to share these verses in a couple of weeks around Advent. Maybe they would say things like, he's, he's promised someone who's going to rescue us. He's promised someone who's going to take us out of pain, out of misery, take us into his glorious kingdom. We call him Emmanuel. It means God with us. And one day, Isaiah said, one day the government will sit upon his shoulders. That one day a child is promised to us. One day a child will be born and he will rise up and he will lead us into the promises of God. And I wonder if they would lean in around a family time when they gathered around the fire, when they gathered around food and whispered to one another. Maybe they would say, one day, God is sending someone. But you see, in the middle of that silence, they had to hold that tension. I don't know what you're doing right now, God. I don't know where you are. I don't know what your response is going to be. But I do know that you are at work. And one day, there's going to be breakthrough in a moment. And so we come to the place of solace. You see, there's comfort in knowing that God hears us. They begin to pray and there's this, just this belief and this faith that as I pray, even though I don't feel it, God hears my prayers. God does not turn away from me. And there's comfort in knowing that you can talk to the Lord. There's comfort in knowing that you can bring your hearts before the Lord. There's comfort in knowing that he will listen to you. The Bible tells us time and time again that God's attention is bent towards us. He inhabits the praises of his people. He catches every tear in a bottle. Nothing falls to the ground. That The Lord holds those prayers prayers. And even though we're not aware of his presence, even though we're not always aware of his ear being turned towards us, the confidence that we've got to walk in is that he does hear us, that he does comfort us, that he does pay attention. And we can take solace in that uh, as we come to our reading this morning. And so that's the backdrop of Luke. We're going to read this morning from Luke chapter 1. And we're actually going to dial it back from the verses that Jean read. We're going to read the very beginning. So if you've got a Bible, you can get ahead and turn there. If not, it's going to come up on screen. But this is the backdrop there. They're in a place of silence. They're in a place of patience. They're in a place of waiting. Words that I love. I'm not very patient. I'm not always enjoying the silence. I don't always like that anticipation. But this is where God's people are. And sometimes it might be where you are in your faith. But the solace is knowing that God is working. And that's where Luke begins. So Luke, verse, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 1 says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Talking about everything that Jesus has done. He's writing after the fact. Um, Just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself, this is Dr. Luke, the writer of the gospel speaking, uh, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things being taught. And so Dr. Luke is writing this gospel, he's been commissioned, he's gathering up all the facts, all the information. By this time, the church is on the move, people are turning their lives to Jesus, he, people are being transformed by encountering the Holy Spirit, and Luke is trying to gather all of this great stuff that's happening, he's trying to gather the information in one place, and they're thankful that he writes the gospel of Luke, and we're thankful, aren't we? Because we wouldn't really know about Jesus had we not got these gospel writings to learn and to hear about. And so Luke brings all of this together and he tells the story of Jesus, the true story of Jesus. And it begins in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's a key word I'm going to need you to remember. They serve the Lord blamelessly. And they do it in the middle of the gap, by the way. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on, uh, on duty, he was serving as priest before the Lord. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Uh, the reason I bring that word blameless up is there's this this cultural difficulty going on and it's something you ought to be sensitive to and you ought to read this gospel with a level of cultural sensitivity that this family had this, this prayer that they wanted to, to have generations in their family. They wanted to have children. They wanted to go on and they reached a point where they just thought, you know what, it's not going to happen. And the word that they use blamelessly is going to come into play because later on it says that the Bible takes their disgrace away. But you need to understand from a Christian perspective, that's that's not a perspective that the Lord holds. That's something that's cultural that's happening. That's something that would have been an opinion of the people and something they felt as a family. And Luke does a really good job in highlighting that these people were righteous and blameless. And the reason he mentions that is because in the perspective of the day, if you had anything that was short of a perfect life, it was thought maybe you'd done something. And maybe you would feel shame and disgrace around that. And Luke's saying, no, that's not how it works. That you can be righteous, you can be holy, you can be perfect in all things, and you will still face difficulties. You can do everything that you ought to be doing in your faith, and you will still face a challenge. The idea that you can come to Jesus and life will be perfect is not true. Now, you will have hope, and you will have joy, and you will have something that carries you through, but you won't necessarily have something that takes away the difficulties that we face. And it's just important to know that Luke does this revolutionary thing. He speaks into a toxic culture that challenges those ideas. And so, as we set the scene, the priest uh, is chosen once a year to go and offer incense at an altar. He's chosen to go into the most holy place to burn incense before the Lord. And only one person, once a year, could go into the place to do this. Now, imagine this, 450 years of silence, not hearing from the Lord. And the one opportunity where you could, one person gets to do it. I mean, that seems a little unfair to me, uh, and maybe that's why things change dramatically, but what they do is they tie a rope around his waist, and he goes into the temple, and the idea being that if he did, by some chance, meet with the Lord, he may die. 
So not only do you, do you have this 450-year gap of not hearing from the Lord, but you may not survive it if you do. Are you nervous to pray? <laughs> uh, and the idea is this, that the Lord is so holy, that, that, and we're not holy, that if we go into his presence, nothing of sin could stand in his presence. Nothing of sin could exist within his presence. And so holiness is too much for it. And so they'd tie a rope around his waist, he would go in, and if something would happen, they would pull him out bit by bit, just in case there was something significant happening. And so there was this nervousness and attentiveness and, and expectation and frustration around the silence and the gap. And this moment of worship comes, Zechariah goes into the temple and he has an experience with an angel. And I don't know what your perspective of an angel is. Maybe it's someone who floats, who wears a white dress and has tinsel over the top of their head. Maybe that's, that's the cartoon image that we have, but actually meeting an angel is terrifying. Like if you've ever read the book of Revelation, it is terrifying. And without fail, every time someone meets an angel, they are gripped by fear. And so this is what happens. And it's a fun account to read. Uh, verse 11. Then an angel of a Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. He was terrified. Uh, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll relax. Uh, he probably was still a bit nervous. He probably was still gripped with fear. Uh, and the, the angel says this, Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Easy teen years for the parents. Knowing that ahead of time must have been a, a great joy. And so... Um, he will, be great. he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never take wine and fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And the disobedience, the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I'd like us to take a moment just to realize that this baby John is the first person to be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's born. I think that's quite impressive. Like we often wait for a moment and we wait for, for a right circumstance where we invite the Holy Spirit. But actually God's Spirit doesn't play by the rules that we think he should play by. That he's able to fill someone even before they're born. And so this boy is filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. And sometimes you realize that actually God is preparing you. God is preparing you in ways that you don't realize. And the whole purpose of John's life was to point people to the Lord. To prepare them for righteousness. To point them back to God. And what you learn from this and what you reflect on this is actually sometimes my life is about just pointing people to the Lord. And your life, as you meet people in your family, as you meet people in your workplace and in your homes and in your schools and in your day-to-day, -day, actually maybe the only thing you can do is point them towards the Lord. Sometimes we want the story from start to finish, don't we? We want to share in that joy of seeing someone completely rescued and transformed. And what a joy that is. But sometimes all you're doing is nudging them along the journey. Sometimes all you're doing is inviting them to something where they can experience something of the Lord. Sometimes you're praying for years and you're not even the one that brings them through the whole journey. There's a wonderful lady who taught me in Sunday school. Her name's Gwen. She's with the Lord now. And... Um, she was uh, sprightly right until the age of 90, wasn't she? Fancy dress in the charity shop and singing and dancing. She was praying for her family for 
decades, like praying for her, her grandson and granddaughter. And one day they gave their lives to Jesus and she was so angry. Like she was so annoyed. And she was annoyed because she didn't lead them to the Lord. And I remember having a conversation with her going, actually, do you know what, Gwen? Sometimes you're the person that points them to the Lord. That you don't get to share necessarily in the whole story, but you're a part of their journey. And without that prayer, without that dedication, without those decades of underpinning and praying into the promises of God for somebody, it may never have happened. And so actually, sometimes you're just nudging people along. Sometimes you're just one step, one encounter. It's thought that it takes somewhere between five and ten interactions before somebody will respond to the gospel. Maybe you're one of those. And John... His life was all about that, pushing people, pointing people towards the Holy Spirit. Let's read on, verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, now here's a dumb question. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's a dumb thing to say. Uh, um, you can work out why for yourself in a second, but one thing I want to highlight is um, think about the situation. He's in the presence of an angel. And he's asking, how can I be sure of this? Verse 19, the angel said to him, and I like to think the angel responds with a bit of annoyance. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day that this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. There's an issue of certainty as we approach the Lord, and there's an issue of certainty for, for Zechariah. How can I know that God is real? How can I know that God is speaking? You're stood face to face with an angel. You've been gripped by fear. They appeared out of nowhere, and you're still asking the question, how can I be sure this is God? The clue is your experience in, in the presence of the Lord. And it's a foolish thing to say, but Zechariah says it, but the truth is we all say it. From time to time, we can have an encounter with God that we soon forget about. And we start to explain it away. And we start to go, well, maybe, I don't know. It was a while ago. Did God really say that? Did God really move? I once knew somebody who was miraculously healed. And I'm not talking a toothache or a headache. It was an impossible experience. And they, they fell away from the Lord. And I remember speaking with them when they were having this frustration just before they were about to walk away and just trying to reconcile. My friend, you had this encounter with God. Oh, yeah, but, you know, I'm not really sure what happened. It was 10 years ago. I don't know if God really did it. And so rationalized, irrationally rationalized his way out of the faith. And you might say, well, I would believe God if an angel came and spoke to me. No, you won't. Zechariah stood face to face with one and he still can't believe it. And he says, you know, how can I know? How can I be sure? And the angel, I, I just, I like to think the angel Gabriel was just a bit irritated and said, right, because of that, you're going to be silent until it happens. And now you'll know. And every time you try and speak, every time you try and go and voice something, you're going to remember, oh yeah, I met an angel. <laughs> oh yeah, God is who he says he is. Oh yeah, God is faithful to his promises. And so verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple so everyone's outside. No one knows what's going on. They're all waiting in the courtyard. They're all praying. Uh, someone's holding the rope, I think, just in case. And uh, what's, do I start pulling now? He's been a while. He's been praying for a bit. And so they're probably a little bit frustrated. What's going on? Uh, and when he came out, verse 22, he could not speak to them because he'd been cocky with an angel. <laughs> they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. 
<laughs> I wish I was there. <laughs> Verse 23, when his time of service was completed, that was a tough shift, he, re- he returned home, and after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, egg on his face in that moment as well, by the way, and for five months remained in seclusion. That's a cultural thing. Uh, the Lord has done this for me, verse 25, and she said, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. The reason I mentioned that earlier is because that's the key phrase. It's amongst the people that they experience these things because of the cultural perspective, but actually the Lord uh, doesn't see it that way. And so what you see is this, this wonderful encounter of Zechariah having disbelief, but then being brought to a place of faith because of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And actually, the promises of God exceed our expectations time and time again. And so what do we make of that? You've got silence, 450 years gap. You've got solace, which is a comfort in knowing who God is. And then you've got certainty, which is when we get to the place of faith. And in silence and solace and certainty, we have different walks and different experiences. You see, in Genesis, we could walk with God And then sin entered the world and all we could do really is pray and speak to God and negotiate the broken world that we're in. And when Jesus came, we could be restored to God. And when the Spirit comes, we can know God. And actually, you and I, we live in the aftermath of all of these stories. And we recognize that as people have walked and encountered God in certain ways, we live in the place of being able to know Jesus and know the power of his Holy Spirit, that we can walk with him, that we can know him, and that we can speak him. And actually our comfort and our certainty, whether we're feeling God is silent or we're feeling like God is speaking, is that we can lean into the promises of God. We read these stories and we recognize that he's faithful in all things. And that doesn't mean that every prayer gets answered. It doesn't mean that we get every comfort and every, every pain is taken away. That That will happen either in this life or the next. But we realize that God is close to us. That God has his ear turned towards us. That his attention is upon us. And what I like to call it is the inevitability of God. That in all things, in all of my plans, in all of my abilities and trying to make life happen and sort things out. That God is inevitable. He will do what he wants to do. And he will bring about his plans and purposes in the way that he wants to do them. Now, I still have to participate in those, but I am amazed constantly when I ignore God, he still goes about his will despite what I'm doing. He still has a way of speaking to those he wants to speak to. He still has a way of drawing in those that he wants to draw into. Whether I'm faithful to him or not, it doesn't change the fact that he's faithful to me. And it doesn't change the fact that he's faithful to us as a church. And it doesn't mean that life is no longer problematic, but it means that we now get to walk in the assurance of who our heavenly father is. That she draws us into his kingdom and that's the way that it works, that it operates under his rule, under his jurisdiction, under his perspective. And, and I wonder if we could lean into the promises of the Lord this morning. I wonder if we can find joy in the assurance and certainty of God that even if I'm facing trouble, even if I'm facing uncertainty, even if I'm praying for something that's not happening, actually God is still faithful in those things. You know, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, they were blameless in all things, but they still faced difficulty. And there was still a sense of, I'm not sure if God will respond. But they did have an assurance and a certainty in him. And what I'd love to do is just invite the worship team And as we enter this time of worship, I want to remind you of some of the promises of God. Because we've talked about the fact that God is faithful in his promises. But what are those promises? What are the things that our hearts ought to align with? What are the things that would carry us if we are facing difficulty, if we are praying 
into some difficult circumstances, if we are facing any level of poverty, whether that's emotionally, spiritually, relationally, what does God say about these things? What has the Lord had for us? And here's some things maybe you can lean into, some of the promises for not just you as an individual, but for us as a church as well. Psalm 100, he promises that he will be faithful through the ages. Isaiah 54, he promises that his love is unshakable and his peace is ever available to you. In Psalm 23, he promises he will be with us through trouble. Notice that he doesn't take us out of it. Proverbs 3, he promises to guide you. John 10, he promises a full life. John 14, he promises a future for you. In Luke 11, he promises his Holy Spirit. In Jeremiah 29, he promises to listen to you. In Ephesians 3, he promises strength. In Joshua 1, he promises not to abandon you. In Psalm 102, he promises to answer the prayers of the destitute. In 1 John 1, he promises the forgiveness of our sins. In Galatians 3, he promises that you, for those of you who are in Christ, can inherit every promise ever made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the nation of Israel. The promises made to them are now available to you. In Revelation 21, he promises to wipe away every tear. In that same chapter, he promises to make all things new. And in John 11, he promises life everlasting. Hey, if you're able, would you stand with me this morning? And I, I don't know what your Advent is looking like. I don't know what your Christmas season is looking like. It might be smooth. It might not be so rosy. But actually, Advent is for you. To go back to that quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come because we lean into the joy of the promises of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are faithful in all things. We thank you that you have made promises to us. And you're reliable. You don't break your promises. And God, as we pray, would you help us to recognize we're not praying for the things that we want. We're not being wishful in our prayers. But help us to align our hearts with your promises. And as we realize your goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and vast immeasurable love. Lord, would you help us to experience joy in those things? As we're disappointed from time to time in life, would you help us to recognize that you're with us in those things? And Lord, we bring them before you and we say, may your will be done. And we won't stop praying till you ask us to stop praying on any one particular thing. Because we know, Lord, that you're able to do more than we could ask or imagine. We know that you're able to bring peace. We know that you're able to reconcile things. We know you're able to restore and heal. We know you're able to change circumstances. And so, Lord, we want to be a people that lean into your promises. And as we worship God, would you bring conviction to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit? What's the promise that I need to lean into today? What area am I lacking where I need to bring it before the Lord? And may we do that with the joy of certainty of knowing that you are faithful in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.